well on this week's episode of Bonehead. I'm so excited because we have Mr. Jeffrey Reddick or Mr. Reddick. Uh, just call me Jeffrey. <laughs> That's Mr. okay. I, I love the I love the manners from the from the South, you know. But um, you and I will talk about that in a minute. Yeah, you know, Kentucky is one of those. <laughs> Jeffrey, that, makes me, Jeffrey makes me feel young. <laughs> well, we're, we'll talk about that in a minute. I'm so, from a different side of Kentucky than you all, so y'all kiss my ass. <laughs> he's from 15 minutes outside of Louisville. That's basically southern Indiana. You know how this Oh, my goes. God. You're, you're a city slicker to you. Absolutely. I grew up in, a, I know. I grew up in a, Wait, a trailer. We had an outhouse. I don't want to hear it. What kills me is, so you're from Jackson, Kentucky, which sounds nice. Yeah. But it's from southeastern Kentucky. I'm from Waddy, Kentucky. Why? Waddy, okay. W-A-D-D-Y. He shot it his sounds like I, It sounds like I'm in the mountains somewhere. I'm literally... 30 minutes from Louisville. That's hysterical. <laughs> I grew up in the hills in Leslie County in Hyden, uh, about 40 minutes from where you grew up. Um, but that's okay. What we're going to do is ask a few questions, get into this, but I've got to tell you a story. So you and I have met. We met about 15, 17 years ago at a little film festival in Lexington, Kentucky called MEIC. Do you yeah. have any recollection of ever being there? Honestly. If I'm honest, I don't. No, that's okay. But, I didn't expect but, you to remember me. I'm just saying, do you, I was wondering if you had any recollection what of anything. Am I, what, what did that stand for? I don't remember. <laughs> I don't, there weren't that many conventions in Kentucky. No. Um, was was uh, uh, Keith Carradine at that one? John, yes. John Carradine, I mean. Okay, I do remember that one. And I got a story out of that later that night because Chad and I had a short film and my girlfriend but who would become my wife was a producer and writer on it too we had a short film playing there you and i actually had a long conversation about directing doesn't matter i don't expect you to what remember was your short film would you say what was your short film oh it's called reminiscence it, it it's the only good thing we ever did chad <laughs> what do you think yeah 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 probably <laughs> we did one a couple of years ago that kind of pretty much just killed everything we were like uh we, we may just go into podcasting but anyway so um I was really proud of that one, but that's this interview's about you. Oh. Yeah, I, later on, if we get into it, let, remind me to tell you what John Carradine did in the lobby that night. I remember he got so drunk and they slid down Alpha's chair and they had to carry him off. The okay, night. well, you must so have been there later. I, they oh. had to remove him off the piano too. We were down there hanging out. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He's a great yeah. talent. He was a great, great talent though, but yeah. He was a great talent. Um, so, I've been trying, racking my brain, trying to figure out how to do this. But so we knew each other. We started this three or four years. How does it take Bob Singleton to get you on this damn show? Because I honestly, honestly, like I, because I don't have like an assistant or anything like that. Like I just, I'm so busy all the time that I just lose track and I have ADD. So I just like lose track of shit. And I mean, stuff. No, I can say shit. You can say that. shit. You can say shit, yeah. fuck, whatever you uh, like. I don't, the funny thing is I don't curse in real life, but if you get me on a podcast or if I'm talking to a classroom of children, no, not children, <laughs> part. but if you get me on a podcast, I tend to curse, but um, no, but I just, I honestly, I, I just forgot that you'd reached out to me. So I was talking to Bob and he's like, oh, he's reached. And I looked through my old emails and I was like, crap, I never got back to him. So okay, I did um, it two or three times. Real quick, <laughs> you, let me tell you other funny story. You actually, you, there was two people when we started this almost three and a half years ago, 
and I said, you know, there's two people we got to get. One of them is from Eastern Kentucky, like I am. He he was, and Chad was like, yeah, we got Jeffrey Reddick will do the show because we have the Eastern Kentucky buy-in. We yeah. have had so many people till we finally got you. And the other one we just got a month ago, who's also from Kentucky, Todd Farmer. Oh, I love Todd. He's one. Of, he's like a good friend of mine. I adore him. He's amazing. Right. Well, Todd did over two hours with us and was, and was so happy that we let him talk politics. Oh yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I'm, I'm gonna. I don't know how Arizona's going tonight, but I might be happy to talk politics too. Um, well, we're we're uh, we're too liberal. We live in Lexington, and yeah. we're too liberal folks in Kentucky. I always tell people uh, we both work at a at a certain university in Lexington. You probably know which one. And I always tell faculty when they come here, it's like, oh, Kentucky. So I was like, you don't know what real Kentucky is. Lexington is not real Kentucky. Yeah, yeah I think people in people in this in this bubble that we live in here like forget what the other areas are <laughs> so the, the, the thing and i won't even get off on this but the th or go off on this for but the thing that frustrates me is mitch because mitch mcconnell has is the second most powerful man in government and he has done shit for like rural kentucky like lowest in education lowest in yeah. health care low, lowest in economy like he's done nothing for the state except for the big cities and they just people just keep voting him in and it's like i don't care if you vote for a republican or a democrat but vote for somebody who's gonna help you like you know he's he makes millions and millions and millions of dollars a year and gets hundreds of millions for kentucky but i don't know where the, it doesn't go to eastern kentucky i'll tell you that no. much but no, they keep you, voting for him it's just so frustrating well you come in you know how this works they come in they say five things about coal and how they're eventually going to bring coal back and everybody yeah. says well, i want and that they ain't going to kill them babies in coal yeah but what uh, yeah guns and, no, guns. and guns yeah. i'm so yeah, sorry yeah yeah, yeah. So, chad's correct so there's, but, there's the three issues and then they just vote republican straight ticket yeah i know it's just it's frustrating believe it's me. frustrating yeah, it's frustrating yeah. So back to Bob Singleton. Yes. He's I, been on the show. He's a, he's a friend of mine. Actually, our last short film, The Third Degree, Bob was a narrator. So oh. to tell you that I like Bob a lot, he's just batshit nuts, which is why I like Bob a lot. Yeah. What's the best story you have about Bob? Because I'm going to play this later. I know this is a question you never get. So on a podcast, what's your best? Because you were roommates at Berea, correct? Uh, we stayed together for a, for a little bit, but we were in theater together. Uh -huh. um, I don't, ha you know what? He was just a good, he was such a good actor and I had a huge crush on him. I mean, that was ridiculous. Um, you know, straight fucker. No, I'm kidding. No, but I, <laughs> I love it. I love I it. I love any, it. Keep I going. This any, is, I don't have any crazy Bob stories because he was very serious about acting. He was very like serious about his craft and he was the sweetest guy. Um, we shot a little, sh we, I shot a movie on VHS, like, like a horror movie that we, me and a bunch of the people in the theater class were in. And, you know, of course he played the, you know, the studly cool guy. Um, and uh, yeah, but I, I can't think of any, there aren't any crazy stories cause he was, he's just a real stand up like cool guy he really is. I just thought he was like super hot, you know, in college. He still is hot, but you know what I'm saying? Don't tell him that, don't tell him. Oh, that. He knows. <laughs> he knows. Uh, so yeah it came out when bob was on the show we did a, a show on theater and then he started talking about his roommate and him trying to tell his roommate you know i think horror is dead man wouldn't you like to do something else? oh yeah he did tell, yeah that is funny no he, i he because <laughs> i always i've always loved horror i'm wearing my berea college 
uh, I, I saw that volleyball. volleyball shirt um because i spoke to the girls volleyball team which is awesome at Bria. i love Bria. um but yeah no i have always loved horror and bob bob <laughs> bob did give me that give me that sage advice and i i was like but i've always known that horror is kind of consistent in the entertainment industry it's just it gets really popular and then people start making copy you know copies of the popular movie and then it kind of dies down a little bit and then it gets popular again I, so i gotta ask though uh you know I've, I've read for several articles where you know you saw night around elm street and that was your inspiration but why wasn't alone in the dark not your inspiration <laughs> well no the funny thing is um because i remember i still remember it like me and my friend tony calhoun um like we were <laughs> we we're too poor to go to the drive-in but yeah. he lived behind the drive-in and so he could get on his dad's uh, semi-truck and turn the radio on and like lay on the hood and watch movies. So I had no expectations of Nightmare on Elm Street being good because yeah. I didn't find this out till later, but something got weird in that when they printed the movie where it got washed out a little bit. Mm -hmm. So it looked, when I saw it on the TV, it looked cheap. You know, it didn't look as crisp as these other movies. So I was excited to go see Alone in the Dark and I just was like, oh, that Night Elm Street movie looks cheesy you know you saw they had freddie's hands going out which kind of looked that's it fake the only real fake thing in the movie yeah so i just didn't think it was going to be good so you know i'm watching alone in the dark and you know it's good and scary and it's got all this stuff in it that you want in a, in a horror film and jack palance and jack palance yeah it was i mean it was really it had some really good scenes in it but then i almost forget about it because the nightmare and elster just blew me away yeah you know i thought tina was going to be the lead and then they killed her off and then all the fantasy sequences and then Nancy just being such a badass like final girl and Freddie being so scary and he was like cutting himself and cutting his I was just I was like oh my god this is like the best movie I've ever seen yeah that that's still as you know as iconic as it is the the uh the uh body bag in the school scene mm, yeah gave me nightmares for so long and I, I I think I was like six or seven when I finally saw when I saw that movie for the first time I don't know how I didn't get your age when you saw that um, we were uh, 14, yeah. 14, was, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I, I was scarred from a young age. <laughs> just wanted to bring up that you're younger than me, right? Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. No. I see, well, I see how this is going to go. All right. I love the fact that you're playing along with us. We're going to have a good time. Oh. <laughs> I do have some serious questions. Yeah, even in your advanced age. <laughs> <laughs> I do have some serious questions because I feel okay. that we have a kinship, both of us being from the hills uh yeah. raised there mm -hmm. and but at the same time and i'm sure you get this a lot so i was listening to a lot of interviews you tell the story about being 14 writing correspondence sending movie posters and i want to get to how you basically uh, fleeced berea out of a summer internship to go to new york i want to get to that in a second <laughs> but we have been doing our research on you by the way when i'm trying to show. <laughs> right so but where i'm can you talk a little bit about your experience being biracial? And I'm sorry to bring this up, and I know it's a lot, like you're the only one, but oh, also yeah. being a gay man in a place, and you're you're just a few years older than me, but it wasn't overly accepting when I was there, and I know it wasn't overly accepting when you were there. Yeah, no, I don't mind talking about it at all. I mean, you know, I preface this conversation by, you know, saying that I have nothing but gratitude for where I grew up. I think it gave me a great perspective on the world that I wouldn't have anywhere else. And I learned that once you work through people's prejudices, they're good people underneath, um, is what I'll say. And I have Sometimes a lot you have to dig there. deep with a shovel. 
No, but I, you know what? I, I have a lot of people, a lot of relatives there that I love, but you know, my mom was white and we moved back there to take care of her grandparents. And basically it was my sister and I, and then two other biracial kids that were in our whole school system from grade zero through college, through Lee's college. Like there, so there were only four of us and we all, we both came in, both families came in around the same time. Um, and yeah, I mean, we I mean, the racism was horrible. Like, I'm not going to lie. I mean, you know, people in a, in, when I give examples that are horrific, it makes it seem like it happened all the time and it didn't. And yeah. there were a lot of good people there, but you know, people, mom would get called death threats. You know, people would call us the N word. There were kids on the bus that would spit on us. Um, you know, it was very, I mean, you know, one thing, like when I was a junior, I got, I got selected for prom court and all they have to do is like a girl has to walk into the room with me. I'm like, not her date. You know, we just, they pair us up and like literally the principal of the school was getting calls from girls' parents going, well, can he walk with one of his kind? And this was in 1986. And then I have a, a friend who was on prom court, Leslie Pope. I love her to this day. And again, love everybody that I grew up with. Cause again, you know, racism and my mom always said, you know, don't get angry with these people. Like they're ignorant. And she only meant ignorant in that they haven't. No, seen it. But she's like, they haven't seen anybody like you before. Right. And that, you know, and I've seen people change so much. Like so many people that I went to school with have, are still friends of mine. And they're like, I, you know, I have, you know, I've married somebody of a different race that I would never have done that if I had not known you because you opened my mind. So um, I say all this with like gratitude for where it ended up. It was just as a kid, it was hard to go through. Yeah. But um, yeah, my friend Leslie Pope was like, and she's like tall. She's like, I don't even know how tall, she's way taller than me, I'm five seven. She's like, fuck them bitches, I'll walk with you. And <laughs> I was like, cool, you know? Um, and then the year after that, I think Jason, who was the other um, man in town, um, became prom king, you know, became prom king, which was cool. So, you know, it's, it's an evolution that, that you see in people uh, and it's gotten a lot better. Um, when I go back to that area, I'm actually surprised that, oh, wow, there's a couple of people of color around here of different races and people aren't staring at me like they used to. So it's changed, but I don't think people realize that it wasn't that long ago, you know, the late 80s wasn't that long ago. <laughs> and there's a lot of towns like that. And as far as being gay, I didn't, I mean, people people knew, it was kind of like don't ask, don't tell. I mean, I kind of got lucky this because nobody's parents would let them date me anyway. So I didn't have that pressure in high school of- I'm sorry, having, I don't mean to laugh, but it's just- No, weird. but it's like, yeah. you know, it's, it's you make lim, lemonade out of lemons, you know, but so I never had that pressure of having to have a girlfriend because you know, girls, their parents just wouldn't let them, let them date me. Um, so, but my friends knew that I was gay and they were fine with it. And there was, there were a couple of other gay students at school. Um, but it was kind of like, don't, like I told my best friends, but I didn't tell like everybody, but people kind of assumed anyway. Um, and there was a kind of a don't ask, don't tell kind of thing about it. Like most people didn't care. You know, people really only start, started calling me faggot when they, when people started, when the Edward, when calling me nigger went out of style, you know what I'm saying? Like right. once they couldn't call me that anymore, people started going, oh, that's not cool. Once people started doing that, then I started getting called, you know, right. a bag. and it's not by everybody. You know, this, again, it wasn't like, I don't want it to sound like all of Eastern Kentucky was like this. There were so many people that weren't like that or so many people that would stand up for me, but it was the pervasive culture at that time. 
because they'd never had anybody seen anybody who was biracial in, in their town. So they just had all these negative stereotypes from movies and hearing stories from Lexington. Like every time there was a, a black man that did something bad in Lexington, I would get like a knot in my stomach because I knew the conversation, if it was a murder, especially they'd be talking about it at school the next day, you know, and yeah. they'd be talking, you know, it's, and you know, it's, it's a weird, it's just a weird way to grow up where you feel like you're the representative of all black people. And I got that a lot too. Well, you're not like those other black people, you know, you, you're smart and you're well-educated and you're nice and you don't steal. And, you know, I got that, or, you know, I got that a lot too. I know. And it's one of those questions that I couldn't, but I had to ask you a little bit about it simply because we're from the same area. And, and to correct one little thing, I, I, and this is coming from me, it's willful ignorance. I think at at a certain lot of it is willful ignorance is I think I don't want to know. I don't want to get better. I think it, there comes a point, like, I think when I first got there, there was a lot of ignorance because people didn't, had never seen anybody like me before. Um, But I think there's a point now, obviously, where there's been exposure to people. And so now there's, there is willful. I mean, I, I still have some, you know, people that I love dearly who still think that, you know, they, they're not sure if mixing the races is, is what God wants, you know, and they'll tell me this without even realizing how offensive it is. And I just kind of, I don't say anything because at this point it's like, you know, yeah, why, you know, I'm the, why, you know, why turn into, why turn it into a fight at this point? Okay. So I'm sorry. I had to get into it. I wanted to ask you some serious stuff. However, you went from breath it to, so you're at, you're at Lee's, which eventually became, I think. I didn't go to Lee's. Um, I okay. went to, from to breath, graduated breath at high school. And then you went to Berea? To Berea. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So you went to Berea and I'm assuming I was listening to one interview that you, you, you decided just to give up at Berea and go, but now can you explain, like I said earlier, how did you fleece Berea out of the money to send you to New well, York? I didn't fleece them. That That's term, but they didn't have, they didn't have a summer program where right. you could for anything to do with the arts. So I worked with uh, Dr. Bolin, who was uh, the, perf- you know, the head of the theater department at the time, and he's Dean and great, great person. And Shan Ayers is, was another one of the teachers that I adored there. Um, but I worked with him to create like a program where I'd go to New York and I had to see like six Broadway plays and write a report on them. So that was the reason for me to go but I really wanted to go to the American Academy of Dramatic Arts but they didn't have any umbrella to give me any payments for that so it's like if I did a thing on theater and saw plays then I could go and go to the American Academy of Dramatic Arts so it was more like a creative accounting with with Berea or creative I just planning. like using the word fleece I know but <laughs> yeah Broadway plays are expensive <laughs> yeah but, no it just reminds me when we were in New York um this is horrible when I first moved there like, you know, I just got in with a, you know, I went to this uh, gay and lesbian youth group and, you know, that's just where you found, I found my friends when I first moved there. Right. And um, sometimes, you know, they were all just had moved there to New York too. So we were all kind of poor. And sometimes they would go to restaurants and then one would yell fleece and then everybody would run off. I'm like, what are you doing? And they're like, we don't pay for the meals. And I was like, don't ever do that again. So, <laughs> so well, I didn't know that I was going to, I didn't know I was going to do a trigger. Sorry. You triggered me. You triggered so me. I got to talk about, cause you know, you, you're from Kentucky. You actually went to New York. Um, you know, you ended up going to film school in New York. Um, 
I was, I'm from Kentucky. I almost went to film school in New York. Bunch of stuff happened. We won't get into. Um, but when I went up there for my visit to see the, the program and to talk to the instructors and get a general idea of if this is what I wanted to go, this is how they, they, they pitched me coming to New York, which by the way, I was dead set on going to New York. It's all, it's where I've always wanted to go. Yeah. They didn't have to pitch hard. Um, the, the, uh, the, the person who was giving me the tour, uh, first broke me off with a, a very attractive woman who pointed out, Oh, you don't have an accent at all. <laughs> oh my God. You'll fit in right in here. Uh, I don't remember you ever telling me that story. I don't, I may not have, but then, um, but then the, the uh, after she was done giving me the tour of the campus and, and, and the facilities, the guy came back and he goes, so are you single? It's like, yeah. Oh, you'll have no, New York is where you come to to meet all kinds of women. <laughs> like, that's your pitch. Talk to me about the universe. <laughs> I didn't know if you had that same experience of, oh yeah, come to New York, you'll get all kinds. <laughs> no, I didn't. Um, I just it's so funny because people ask me if I got culture shock or anything like that. But I've known from a young age that I wanted to work in entertainment. So yeah, when I got to New York, I was completely fine. Like I didn't have culture shock or anything. I'm like, well, let me. Let me find some gays, you know, <laughs> to hang out with, because that got to, you know, and then, yeah, I had, a, I was going to the American Academy of Dramatic Arts. I got an internship at New Line. So I was like, this is, this is awesome. Like, it was like, I felt like I was in fame yeah. Um, at the beginning of fame. But then by the years later, I started feeling like I was Coco from fame where I'm like looking at the camera and crying as I take my top off for the lecherous prediction. <laughs> um, that never actually happened to me, but I'm just saying for my soul, that's what it, you know, after the business like beat you down for a long time. So I think the, I wasn't culture shocked either because I was I was just in love with New York. Yeah, but I will say the one thing that cult that the one shock I did see in New York was I was walking down. Um, it wasn't broad. It wasn't Broadway. It was like a road adjacent to Broadway, and there was this elderly African American postal lady, and she was like dead set on getting to her, you know, her deliveries, and she elbow checked <laughs> this very big uh lady of spanish descent i mean she elbow checked her right in the chest to get by her and the the, the that lady turned around and looked at the, <laughs> the elderly african-american lady and she just went off on her and you know oh. what happened nothing she nothing. just kept walking <laughs> yeah i was like i love this town <laughs> yeah la was um i it's there's just so much energy you know it was a, it was um I loved it when I was, I loved it, especially when I was younger. Like I, I found when I've gone back there, I've always gone in the summer when it's really hot. So the minute I get off the plane, I'm drenched in sweat. I'm like, yeah. I'm like, oh, it's, I feel like an old, I'm like, oh, it's crowded. Too many people. Um, yeah. Well, it is a great city. So <laughs> back to the, and I'm a little fuzzy when I was trying to, and I know you talk about this a lot. So you were, <laughs> you're like, I know you talk about this so much, Jeff, but um. I know. Well, I'm a little fuzzy about the detail of of actually getting the internship at New Line. So you were, were you in school? Oh, that, the acting thing wasn't working out, or were you interning while you were in school? I was interning while I was in school. Okay, thank you. Oh, so, yeah. That's was, what I was a little like fuzzy a summer, Yeah, it was going to be like a summer internship. Yeah, yeah. Summer staying at the American Academy. Um, when I was at the American Academy, I had the fortune um, of meeting this really wonderful girl named Nicole, and her, her mom was a casting agent at the time I didn't know it and I think I was pretty much the only person in the class that didn't know it so yeah. that's why we ended up becoming friends because I was actually she was just pretty I don't 
gay guys love pretty women for some reason. I don't know. I don't know what it is. You know, <laughs> we have that up, in common, like, Jeff. I'm sorry. Growing, go ahead. growing up, it was like what you know, Linda Carter's. Oh, she's so beautiful. Um, we just want to put them in a box. Not in a box. That sounds really creepy. Um, <laughs> really good movie. Keep writing it. <laughs> you know, I want to put them on a shelf because they're so pretty. Um, but she was, really, she was really sweet. So um, she ended up getting me some extra work um, on all my, all my children. And um, yeah, I just started getting extra, a lot of extra work while I was working at New Line. And I was like, oh, screw it. This is, this is easy. I'm just going to stay in New York. Um, cut to like a year and a half later. I'm like, I'm going back to Berea, finish college. Um, <laughs> Yeah, because it was it's a tough it was tough being an actor um, back again. It's a sign of the times, but this was the early 90s. And my agent literally told me that I was an ethnic Michael J. Fox type. And I'm like, that's awesome. Everybody loves Michael J. Fox. He's on Family Ties. He's on back. She's like, no, they don't write parts for people like that. She's like, if you rapped or play basketball, I could cast you. But you just, you know, because I'm like light skinned and I'm, you know, couldn't play a thug back in the 90s. You know, that was the only work that was available. So, you know, she pretty much is like, I can get you a lot of extra work, but I just don't know what to- Wow, see, I saw that quote and I was wondering if that was true. So that actually oh, yeah. did happen. Yeah, yeah. She wasn't being mean about it. She was just being very matter of fact. She's like, maybe I can get you a guest spot on the Cosby show. And I was like, back in the day, I was like, okay. But now I'm like, oh, I wouldn't want that on my resume. So did that, um, did well, there's that a lot of inspired? people who did do the Cosby show. It's, yeah. I, yeah, I'd have liked it. But, so did that kind of inspire you to like maybe lean more towards writing? Yeah, yeah, okay. absolutely. Because then I was like, well, screw it. I'll just write stuff for myself. You know, I'm like 19, 20. I'm like, I can play one of these, you know, pretty high school college people that gets murdered. Um, but then I didn't make a movie that got made until I was 30. So unless it was going to be on the WB, I couldn't play a teenager anymore. <laughs> <laughs> That's a funny joke. Homeboys oh, in outer space. <laughs> yeah, An unforgotten uh, classic. <laughs> but... 30 that's pretty young you're still doing fairly well that you have final destination in theaters by 30 yeah i mean i i definitely thought so like i mean i still yeah it's you, you kicked ass and yeah you, was, and you were very lucky because we're talking about a number one film yeah no it's uh it was it was a it was a honestly it was a great blessing how that all came together and got made and it was kind of a sleeper hit, you know, it came out and it, horror movies usually open really well and then they drop off like 50%. And our movie opened at like number three, but then during the week it was creeping up. Then mm -hmm. the next week and it got higher and then they, they realized, oh wow, we've got a hit on our hands here. So it was a true word of mouth hit. Um, one, of the, one of the few word of mouth hits that it had been out at the studios, you know, for, for a horror film. Um, right, and, and, and you're 30 and I'm curious. So you went back to Berea finished your degree and then went back no, I went, now that's a that's a well i'll tell i'll tell the quick version i had been telling brie i was going to come back for so many times that i was like well just this time so they know i'm serious i'll come back for the summer before the semester starts so they'll know that i'm serious so i came back early stayed the summer started the first semester finished the first semester then got then i got a notice that i was on convocation probation and they have convocations like where you'd go to like this um, um, auditorium yep. and listen to a speaker. You had to go to 10 of them a semester. And I didn't realize that I was behind on convocations when I left because it'd been like a year and a half, two years. And my advisor didn't tell me. And so I was in every play that semester and most of the convocations were at night. And I just didn't know. So they were like, well, we have to suspend you for a semester. I'm like, well, if you do that, then I'm going to have to sp spend another summer 
out of school mm-hmm. and then come back. You know, it's going to be a whole other year before I can come back. And I don't think anybody thought they were really going to do it, but they did it. <laughs> and I tried to appeal it and that they were like, well, we're making an example of convocations this year. So I got put on convocation probation. So then I was like, ah, I guess this is my sign to go back to New York. Um, and then you went back to New York. Yeah. So this is where I'm curious. First of all, have those bastards given Berea given you an honorary degree yet? <laughs> it's funny. No. It is really <laughs> because funny. Chad and I work in higher ed and we see this shit all the time. No, by it, the way, my title is director of an academic advisor. So that's how oh, I know Bob. <laughs> that's so funny. No, it's when I um when Bastard. I spoke to the when I spoke to the Berea College <laughs> girls basketball team, I just jokingly said I would I hope that they you'd think they would give me an honorary degree at some point. Um, and he said that they were actually taking submissions for that. Like, so it just serendipitously happened. I don't know what the outcome is, but. Dude, <laughs> you are a legitimate Hollywood screenwriter from Berea, from Jackson, Kentucky. They should go ahead and give you the honorary degree. They gave yeah. Carpenter one in Bowling Green at Western. Um, well, I'm just saying, all right, I'm going to reach out to Berea now. Oh, it's all right. I'll let it go. I'll let it go. The second, no, no, question, I won't now for the rest of the conversation. <laughs> I bet they asked for money. But anyway, yeah. that being said, I want to know, you worked in the business side for many, many years at New Line, right? Yeah. Yeah, I worked. Yeah. That seems to me that that would give you a leg up when it came to circumnavigating screenwriting and getting your script out there and getting it sold? Um, it, it didn't help. It, what it did was give me a good, a great like look into how they make the movies behind the scenes. Uh-huh. Um, so I was very much able to like learn to separate any rejection I got for and take it super personally because I realized behind the scenes, sometimes I would pass on a script for the silliest reason. Like, you know, they'd get a really amazing script in, but there weren't any attachments. And then, you know, Jim Carrey would come in with a bad script. They're like, well, let's do Jim Carrey's script. We just did this last couple of, so I just realized that a lot of the decisions aren't based on the creative. So that really helped me learn that stuff a lot. But, you know, when I, I worked at New Line, I had written a lot of scripts that I'd submitted to them before. Mm-hmm. And I always got access to the coverage. Like they would have somebody read the script and give notes on it. And some of the scripts got good coverage and some got bad coverage. But I noticed like even my good coverage scripts never went to the next level so I knew that there was a because I'd been there for so long and everybody knew the Bob Shea story about how we connected when I was 14 so mm-hmm. you know everybody loved me but they always thought of me as that the Bob Shea guy you know and um, so when I wrote Final Destination uh, one of my friends Chris Bender worked for uh, two producers Craig Perry and Warren Zide mm-hmm. who had a first look deal at New Line and they happened to be looking for horror stuff and I'm like you know what let me attach producers to this and then bring it to New Line, because then they'll have to take it more seriously. Um, so I learned that from working in this business, for sure. Yeah. Uh, but it didn't, it didn't magically open doors, but it certainly gave me a lot of insight into the business. And they, they would always read my stuff. It's just, you had to overcome that idea. Because honestly, you find out everybody that ends up working in a studio is either a writer or want to be, you know, want to be writer, want to be director, mm-hmm. not want to be you know they're no, doing absolutely. it they want to no, be successful no. you know they, they're yeah. all working there because they want to be the next person that has a project take off uh-huh. um so you know you have to really strategize to kind of make your stuff stand out 
Yeah. So how did that help you as you became more and more successful? So did it help you with, say, once you've sold your pitch um, and then Bob Shea, basically. And for, for those people who don't know, do you want to explain who Robert Shea was? Oh, Shea? Um, so yeah, we Bob may have Shea. some listeners who aren't. I know yeah. he's a new line. I know he was on new line. Yeah. By the way, you wouldn't have Lord of the Rings without Bob Shea, but keep going. Yes. Yeah. You know, Bob Shea's uh, created new line cinema. It started off as a, it, I love this story. It started off. He was just him and his wife were in their apartment. They would just organize these like screenings of like cult films, like mm-hmm. John Waters films to go around college campuses. And he just built up a small distribution company and he ended up financing the first Nightmare on Elm Street movie, which became a huge success. And he mm-hmm. created new line cinema. So um, especially when I worked there, like in the, in the, in the 90s, early 90s through the 90s, um, it was such a, I think it was probably the best studio in Hollywood because it was run by creative people. Mm-hmm. They yeah. got great chances on stuff. I mean, they made, they made Blade, you know, and people were like, who wants to see a black vampire slayer? Like they made Blade. He, this is the first Marvel super, black superhero movie. Thank you. Um, you know, they made The Mask, Dumb and Dumber, House Party, um, Mm-hmm. you know lord of the rings i mean they were the first studio to ever like put put that much money into like doing a trilogy of films back to back like everybody's like this is either going to be brilliant or you're going to just you know you're going to ruin the company and it was brilliant like um so oh bob shay we were talking about him and i forgot what you started your question. no i just wanted to explain <laughs> who bob shay was no i like the fact oh, okay that, no i like the fact that after all these years, because the business can jade you and the business can harden you. And I like the fact that your eyes lit up talking about Bob Shea. So you must oh. still, after all this time, have a special place in your heart for him. Yeah, no, I, 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 you know, again, when I talk about Nightmare on Elm Street, you know, when I talk about Bob Shea or Joy Mann, who was his mm-hmm. assistant, she's no longer with us, unfortunately. But they really, you know, from the age of 14, took me under their wings and, if they hadn't, I mean, I still would have been in the, I would have still found a way to mm-hmm. work in the business. If I hadn't had that internship, I just know I would have, but I would not, it would not have been, yeah, it would not be the like amazing experience that I had for sure. Like I loved working at New Line. I mean, I got to, you know, work at the house that Freddy Krueger built, which is my yeah. favorite film of all time. Um, yeah, it's just such a, it was just a great time. So and you got to hang out with all those. Did you get? I'm hoping that you got to meet all those filmmakers as they came in and out of that building. You, you know what? I some of them I, but I, li- you know, I lived in the New York office, mm-hmm. which was more the corporate office. I right. wasn't out in the Los Angeles office, which was all the, mm-hmm. you know, stars and stars and stuff. But we would get stars obviously coming in for meetings and things like that, and directors. And I would get to meet them, but I would also be very professional, you know, like so. I didn't. No, I was very not good to at- get starstruck. Yeah. Yeah. So I would never get starstruck and I would never, you know, I might talk to somebody like at a premiere, um, but I tried my best to like keep everything professional. Like, I find it fascinating that you told a story to an interviewer. You did uh, two hours with a screenwriting podcast or a screenwriting interview a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. And you pro- I don't know if you remember this. You actually told the story about having, uh, was it lunch with the star of V? And oh, that's my where God, you yes. got. I Stars couldn't remember Brad. her name off the top of my head. Jane Badler, you son of a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> How dare you not know her name? I adore her. She's a friend of mine. I, yeah, like when I, growing up, like Nightmare on Elm Street was like my movie thing, and V was my TV sci fi thing. Like I 
love that series. Me and my friend Greg Slos used to go around school like doing dialogue. I was always we always fight over who's going to be Diana, played by Jane Badler. But I would always get to be <laughs> Diana, um, and he'd be Lydia. Yeah. Um, and I was doing a short, and I reached out to her on on Facebook. That's okay. It asked, works for us. Yeah. It okay. asked. And asked her if if she would be, you know tell her how much she meant to me and asked her if she'd be in my short. She said I'd love to, but I'm in Australia, so I, you know, if I don't know if you have somebody here that can film me or or I was like I'll make it work, I'll make it work. Um, so she was so amazing to work, even though I didn't get to work with her in person. And so she's like, when I come to California, I have to take you out to lunch. So I'm like, cool, I'm going to go meet Jay Madler for lunch. And I've never been starstruck in my life. Like when I worked at New Line, I met like Morgan Freeman, who's like freaking amazing i met like brad pitt i've met cameron d i mean i met a lot of stars at like premieres and stuff like that and i would chat with them and i and it's just like okay these are there's they're people you yeah. know and you know i met heather langenkamp who i adore is nancy in nightmare on street but i think maybe it was the way we met but i guess maybe it was i don't know if it was because we were meeting at the chateau Mar, you know this fancy mm-hmm. like la you know place yeah, for yeah. but I got there and she came out and she looked stunning and she sat down and she's like, oh, how, you know how she's talking. And I'm sitting there going, I can't talk. You know, like I was like, <laughs> and uh, so finally I had to take a breath and I'm like, this is really embarrassing, but I, I now know what being starstruck is like because I've never been starstruck in my life. I just need to take a moment and just soak this in that I'm sitting with you. <laughs> and then she just took my head and she squeezed it and she's like, you're, you're so sweet. And she's such a, just a lovely, lovely person um i just love the fact that it was someone like that because that i i connect with that we do a lot of convention work we do i do a lot of panels moderating for a lot of panels and people ask me and i go ah stars are like anyone else 90 percent of them are just fine and 10 percent a-holes right assholes yeah i'm in that like normal people. Like a, hmm. right i'm sure you find the same thing working day in day out but i've only ever been starstruck two or three times as well and it's someone that no one else would know so i completely it's, understand it, yeah it's who it, i think it's it's a person that really is in, important to you to you and at a time in your life that you know that just holds so much like emotional like and when you're young it has yeah. to be when you're young it's not yeah. going to be when you're 20 or 30 or 40 it has to be when you're really really young they just you're right they were there for the development of you Sorry, Chad, I cut you off. I thought you were about to. No, that. no, no, no. I was just, uh, I'm reminiscing in my own head about uh, William Forsythe. That was me. That was him. From, that was mine. Uh, yeah. You know. yeah. That was, yeah. He's <laughs> yeah. Could not put together a sentence. <laughs> so, Bob pushes you out the door. Well, he pushes me out. It's so funny because I um, I stayed at New Line after the first movie came out. Then I sold the, my story. I wrote the story for the second movie mm-hmm. and sold that. And then finally, they were, t- they told me, they're like, Jeffrey, we love you, but you sold two now. So, you know, go out and go away, writer. Um, so, <laughs> you know, I had a late start in the, in the business. Cause normally when you, like I sold this, the treatment and wrote the first draft of the script in 1997. So normally in Hollywood, you know, the minute you sell a script like that and it goes out, you, if I'd been in Hollywood, I'd been go out taking meetings, you know, that you'd be working yeah. in town. So I didn't get out to Hollywood until 2001 after 9-11. So uh-huh. by the time I came out here, they're like, who the fuck are you? <laughs> <laughs> Even with all your connections, right? Uh, well, a lot of my, most of my connections were through New Line. So a lot yeah. of my, the people that I 
grew, grew up with that new line had were branching out and starting in other places. Um, so I got to meet people through that, but it's, this is a, it's a really big town and there's a lot of rotation and turnaround mm -hmm. of people, you know, like, right. You know, there are so many people that just come and go every day in this, in this business. Um, and even the ones that stick around, like there'll be cycles where you don't hear about them for years and years and we've all been there. Um, so yeah, like nobody, until you say final destination, then they're like, oh, oh, wow, okay. So that's a double-edged sword. I'm assuming you get sick of final destination questions. And by the way, I don't have any. But at the same time, it's your calling card, right? Yeah, I don't get sick of it. I'm honestly like, I'm in, just as a horror fan, uh -huh. like I'm honestly so grateful that, that that movie did so well because it was a chance for New Line. Like they they were like, we don't know how to, we don't know about doing a movie with death as the killer. Like you can't see it. That doesn't make any sense. Like it was a struggle to get it off the ground. So the fact that it's had such a cultural impact is such a blessing to me. Like I never get sick of it. Now I'm sure if I had like written 20 other movies that were successful as Final Destination, maybe I'd be sick of it. <laughs> but I'm like, that makes me happy. You know, like I'm <laughs> sending those log truck memes. I don't care. <laughs> like, yeah, because in some ways Final Destination for quite probably more than you realize that was their uh, nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah, for them. Yeah, I mean, and I've seen, I've started seeing a lot more of that, and it's, it means a lot. It means a lot to me. So I, I, I actually don't get sick about topics. You know, I don't want to like we don't. Obviously, people can hear me talk about it all over the place. So, but I, I, I actually am just. It just makes me smile whenever. Sometimes I'll hear people. I'll be out, and they're like, "Oh man, that was a Final Destination moment," and I'm like, "You've worked your way into the lexicon." I mean, I know it's that is fantastic. You are was, pop culture. I, this is pop, this is right here, pop culture. You are though, you are <laughs> pop culture. That's, I, just letting you know, if you didn't yeah. already know. And yeah. pop culture really likes volleyball. <laughs> <laughs> Woo! Um, yeah, so no, I've got a, um, yeah, I, I'm, you know, that's, I've certainly been chasing that friggin' dragon for 20 years, you know, like I need another <laughs> Final Destination head, Jesus. Um, and at least you got the one, you know, most never get the zero. I got to yeah. ask a question though. You wrote some other screenplays and some of it wasn't produced. What in the hell was your take on Pumpkinhead and can you talk about it? Um, yeah, no, my, I can absolutely talk about it. I mean, I wish I had the script. That's uh, annoys me so much because I wrote it back in the time when um, I worked on it at New Line and I mm -hmm. just felt I didn't keep a copy of it. But no, it was actually, it was a direct sequel uh, to the original Pumpkinhead and it picked up with um, Bud, you know, who's a kid that showed... Um, yeah. Showed Ed Harley where the pumpkin had or the pumpkin um, where the haggis was, and it picked up with him in college. So it took place, I think it was like ten years after the original. So he was in high school, you know. Him and his friends every summer they'd go home to one of their hometowns, and but Bud never wanted anybody to come back to his town because he was kind of embarrassed because he came from such a poor place. But his friends kind of surprise him and go back to visit him. Uh, they end up accidentally getting in a car accident, and somebody calls Pumpkinhead on them. And Sarah, who played Bud's younger sister, started was getting groomed to be like the next Haggis because Haggis was getting old. So I love the script. Like I was so happy with it. And they were like, uh, we're gonna go in a different direction. So then they went with um Blood Wings or yeah. Um, <laughs> which is not not connected to Pumpkinhead at all. So no, but that that's one of those things because so we we're we we try to have a good time, but we also concentrate concentrate on a lot of questions about the industry because we're fascinated by the industry. Yeah. yeah. It, it, go ahead, Jeff. No, no, you go first. It just drives you crazy 
of I can't how many of those do you just get away and go damn mine would have been 10 times better it has to happen to you all the time I mean it does and sometimes I'm really surprised I'm like oh I see why they went with that writer sometimes Uh I leave a meeting and then I go oh they stole those ideas from me (laughs) you know (laughs) that's why they were meeting with me um but Pumpkinhead because that was my first painting job in the business um and I love that property and I you know I I was actually because he the producer had me write a script and had somebody else write a script that wasn't a direct sequel. That was just kind of the movie uh, that came out. Mm-hmm. Um, and then just decided to go with the other one. And I don't know why. Um, I definitely think my story would have been better because the Pumpkinhead sequel that came out just wasn't a Pumpkinhead movie. Like yeah. it didn't have Haggis in it. it, had none of the characters from the original. This about looked like some woman had sex with the Pumpkinhead demon or something. I don't even know. Right. what the movie was so yeah so there's yeah there i kind of wish that one had gotten made but you can't really the thing is i've learned to not hang on to that stuff for two because that's how you get burned out and bitter in this business and i've learned to like let things and i think part of that's growing up where i did too you know mm-hmm. like survival it's just like you just let things kind of roll off your back my sister's the opposite my sister's like went to, went to the military she would again somebody call us anything she'd like start fist fighting with and I'd be the one telling jokes and trying to like, you know, <laughs> be like the clown so people wouldn't pick on me. So um, I know yeah, I think, feeling. yeah, so I think it's picked me. I think it's helped me survive this industry um, and stay, you know, not, not not get bitter and jaded. Yeah. Well, so this and this is going to be kind of it's probably going to be a, a repeat answer, but I am kind of curious. So those are those are scripts that you didn't get picked. But what about the ones? Because, you know, one thing we hear about screen, uh, you know, I love listening to podcasts and interviews with screenwriters who talk about, you know, submitting their scripts and how sometimes they are so drastically altered. And, you know, from you, from you, I know like a lot of the, a lot of the ones, the characters get changed either by race or, or sexuality. And I'm kind of curious when you see that the finished product, are you aware of the changes that are happening until the product is made? And then how, how did, how do you process that of, of. Yeah. I mean, for me, just working at the studio again, I just, I've seen the development process and, Mm -hmm. and I know how it goes. So I expect that unless I'm going to be financing or directing my own script, I'm not going to have a lot of say in it. So I just, I, I, I've been fortunate to stay in, the good graces of like 99.9% of the directors that I've worked with. Uh-huh. So, you know, I've usually they've kept me involved in rewriting stuff sometimes, but sometimes they haven't. Um, and my thing is, I don't care because people get really protective and precious about stuff. And for me, if somebody gives me a good idea or if somebody comes up with a great idea for my script, I don't care like that. If it makes the movie better, I'm all for it. But it's, it's when it gets dumbed down or when it's like, oh, we can't afford this, so let's take all this stuff out. Or, you know, a lot of with the diversity casting, like that's just not, you know, in people's head that, you know, until recently that hasn't really been in people's heads. Like when you send a script in, I can write like an African-American character and a Latino character or an Asian and, or, you know, and just the default for all these characters are white actors. Like right. that's what casting agents send in. So even when I've sent out, we've sent out casting notices saying open to all ethnicities, which is like, send us all ethnicities, they'll send in like 99% white people. So now it's kind of started to change a little bit in the industry, but you know, those kind of changes don't, they don't bother me as long as it's making the script better. 
Um, but a lot of the times the changes don't, but again, a lot, I know like if I have a movie that I've written, that's going to be three, you know, three to five to $7 million budget. And we end up getting it with a production company that's only got a half a million, you know, I know I'm going to have to go through and change stuff. So okay. I've been, I think, again, that's another blessing of having worked at New Line for so long is, is again, I saw how they made the sausage, you know, of course I want to come out with some really great sausage. I'm trying to keep this from going into like a, I love, I love it when you talk about sausage, Keep it. <laughs> but you know, of course I want to come out with some really good sausage that's different than all the other sausages, but you know, I still want it to be enjoy. I want people to enjoy my sausage, you know? Um, so I heard that I've, I subscribe <laughs> to your website. I'm kind of, I'm kind of going to jump the gun a little bit because I, and we're not going chronologically. You're not going to jump the sausage, are you? No, but, and I'm, I'm, I know nothing's been released yet, but I've, I've seen you, that you've talked about the fact that you're writing for the animated show on Netflix, the Yushaga Yujimbo yeah. animated show. Yeah. Which, by the way, yay. <laughs> I know, it's exciting. Um, and I have to always clarify, it's a spinoff, so it's not like a straight adaptation, but we have Stan's approval on everything. He's, you know, given the okay on everything. So we're definitely, it's it's definitely faithful, It's but it's a spinoff and it's free. It's a little younger skewing. Yeah. Um, but it's I, it's been so much fun to write. I'm actually writing, I got an episode that I have to turn in um but like next week so I'm a little behind um but when, but when you're writing for animation mm-hmm. and specifically is there more of a like the sky's the limit to your imagination you there's no blocks there's you know you can do whatever you want with animation is, is, is that is that there is within a budget <laughs> yeah so the sky is the limit but you also have to realize like they have to create all the assets, right. you know, so every character, every location, every prop is an asset and you've only got a certain number of assets budgeted for your show. So then you have to break that down at per episodes. And so this, you, you, you kind of set your pie in the sky stuff early. Um, and then you're like, okay, well for this scene, we can repurpose these characters and just put them in different clothes. Um, you know, that's all animation. So, yeah. so you have freedom of imagination, but you still have to work within you know, it's like if you write a hundred ninjas, a hundred ra- samurai rabbit ninjas, you know, leap over the hill. It's like, we can do 10. <laughs> it's like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. I, I was kind of curious about, I was just kind of cu- curious about if, if there was a, that limitation, but it appears that, that there still is. So that's interesting. I think it's probably, and again, since we're, since ours is a series as well, like you have to keep in mind, like you want to keep, you, you know, you're going to be using a lot of the same characters, but they have mm-hmm. costumes. Um, for a film, for a feature, you probably have a much bigger playground, you know, okay. because the films are, are much bigger. Um, but with the episodes, it's like you're spreading them out, you know, 10 episode seasons. So I talked to Todd about this and I was talking about the difference between screenwriting and writing, a, you know, prose, like a novel. Mm-hmm. And Todd Farmers, he just loves screenwriting. He didn't, it just kind of got to the meat and potatoes, if you will, of, you know, I, here's the dialogue, here's the action, this is what. Yeah. Oh, so I ask you, novels in you? Um, you know, I co-wrote a novel for t- yeah. for my movie Tamara with a friend of mine, John Doyle, who's a great mm-hmm. writer. Um, you know, when I was young, I used to write poems and short stories. Yeah. But I just, as I've gotten older, is this is the bad thing about you know just so much stimulation coming in in society. It's like. I like the, the, like Todd said, the meat and potatoes of screenwriting. Like, and I don't know, remember if that was exactly what Todd said. But, but no, but that sounds like something Todd yeah. would say. Todd also likes to show his ass off in movies. I never, 
stop giving him a hard time for that. Every we movie talked about it. We every, did over, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, no, no. You've watched his stuff. So how many, how many times did you see his ass? Well, I asked him why he kept killing himself. Oh. Because he's writing this shit. Right. He's in it. And that character gets killed. So well, that's fun. That's the fun I know stuff. it's fun. I know it's fun. But is there a certain psychological thing that's taking underneath that's that's doing it? Is there something in the it? Anyway, we yeah. got really into it, and we actually we we ended up having a really good time with Todd. He's gonna hopefully start doing some movies in Ireland, and we, we got invited to come over. And I actually I told him I said you shouldn't say it. I will go. Oh yeah, knows. Jeffrey. No pressure there. Well. Uh, that, that does sound like mom and mommy and daddy are divorced and mommy bought me a huge <laughs> I, yeah i shot day of the dead in bulgaria so i don't know if that's as exciting as ireland um oh man how hard is it to write a remake that people are kind of quasi calling a sequel that's already to a remake how where do you start to break down the logic and uh, of just in, in your by the way, one of the best panels I ever did and one of the few times I got starstruck and I just had to, you know, bury it deep, you know, and just do it. That's kind of probably the definition of being a, a professional. That was me. Thank you. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I am having a good time. It was George Romero. Oh, yeah. I'm assuming not. you're a huge Romero fan as well. Yeah, I, I, um, I have a funny Romero story because I was so nervous after writing Day of the Dead uh -huh. and I became friends with, I'm friends with Ken Forey, who I love. He's just mm -hmm. a, such a great Fantastic guy. storyteller. Oh my God, I love him so much. Um, not like that, but you know. No, he um, is just a great storyteller. He's so great. We we and, saw uh, we we got to see we got to have a conversation with him right after Obama got elected for the first time. And him going minutes, yeah. And, yeah, he talked 45 minutes about you know just that. And I was just we enthralled were with his entire conversation. Yeah, yeah. He's yeah. he's been an amazing, brilliant guy. And mm -hmm. um and, you know, we saw each other at a lot of conventions. He said, hey, Jeffrey, you know, George is over there. Have you ever gone to talk? I'm like, no, I'm not. I'm too nervous to talk to him because I'm afraid he's going to he's going to get mad at me for doing a remake of Day of the Dead. <laughs> he's like, what? And he, he literally grabbed me, dragged me over to George Romero <laughs> across the convention floor. He's like, hey, George, this is Jeff Reddick. He's a great guy, great writer. George's like, oh, nice to meet you. He goes, yeah, he wrote the Day of the Dead remake. And he's like nervous to meet you because he thinks you're going to hate him. And George just looked at me. He goes, no, he goes, I know this business. He goes, you know, I wish you every success, young man. And I was like, oh my God, you're so late. Because I'm a huge fan of George Romero. Um, but it was one of those situations where I was like, I was just too nervous. I was like, I can't meet him. Um, I can't imagine. There's so, and literally, can you talk about that for a minute? Because you're a fan of the man. Yeah. They do a Dawn of the Dead remake, which isn't, but it isn't a Dawn of the Dead. They could have called it something else and would probably have been, and this is just my opinion, it's a good movie. I don't even yeah. know that it needs to be called Dawn of the Dead. Yeah. It takes place in a mall and there's zombies, but yeah. that's about where it ends, right? Yeah. And then uh -huh. you have, and then you're kind of doing, it's not a sequel, but it's a re, do you, do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. I, well, well, the funny thing the is, that, that. yeah. Yeah. And the thing and is, a little they, bit about the story. Sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm rambling. No, no, I ramble too. I ramble. I rambled as well. Um, no, that I'm mean, a rambling they, man. Huh? Shut <laughs> He's a rambling man. Rambling and a gambling man. man. Sorry. Oh <laughs> no, they um they had already hired Steve Miner to direct the movie, so I knew yeah. they were going to make it. Yeah. So my thinking was, all right, I'm a fan. I can at least write a faithful adaptation of the movie. I know the fans. Some fans are going to hate it because you know I'm not stupid. Some people mm -hmm. are going to, but at least you know they're going to make it. It should be me. So mm -hmm. I I wrote a pitch that was very 
close to the original, just updated, modern. Yep. And as we got, and this is the first time this has happened to me, um, really, because I was told like this, you know, well, how are you to write this one? And, but then once we got in the development process and they were planning to shoot already, so we were kind of under the gun, but they started making me change everything that was related to the original mm -hmm. movie. Mm -hmm. um, so you'll even see in the movie, there's some setups where I set up something that's going to pay off like in the original and they don't, things don't pay off. Like when Salazar mm -hmm. finds a machete, there's just all kinds of stuff that, that was like remnants of the original. So when I first, you know, I've told this a lot, but when I first started talking about the movie, I was like, yeah, I know that there are like people out there that hate remakes, but I think fans are going to be really happy. Then by the time I got through writing it, I was like, it's a movie. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I just, and they ended up casting Ving Rhames to trick people. Like Ving Rhames was, I didn't write, you know, Ving Rhames was never Captain Rhodes. Like that was, Captain Rhodes was like a separate character and they just cast Ving Rhames to connect it, you know, to Dawn mm -hmm. of the Dead. And, you know, I watched the movie and if it wasn't called Dawn of the Dead or Day of the Dead, if it was just called Zombie Town, well, there's already a Zombie Town, but probably, you know, yeah. Yeah, but if it, they'd have called it something else, I think it would have done fine because I think it's a fun movie. I think it's a fun movie. Um, but they called it Day of the Dead. So I was, so I, of course I'm living through that whole process and I'm watching it happen. And, you know, I'm like, why, you know, why is that zombie climbing up the ceiling, Steve? Cause in the next scene, the zombie can't reach him in the air vent. He's like, oh, <laughs> and I love Steve Miner. He's a great director and he's a super cool guy. But I remember we got into such a big argument about that spider zombie as they called it in the reviews. Cause I'm like, he's like, I just like it. Cause we've never seen it. I'm like, yeah, cause it doesn't make any sense. He's like, well, he's sticking his fingers in the stucco on the ceiling. But I'm like, Steve, the very next scene, they're in the air vent and the zombies can't get to him. Well, if it doesn't work, I'll take it out. I'm like, it's not working. I'll take it out <laughs> if it doesn't work. It's in there. So there was a lot of stuff like that where it's just like, oh man, this is gonna. But I have to say, like, that Steve was wonderful and the cast was like so amazing and like everybody was so down to earth. I didn't get to meet Ving Rhames. Like they shot him out before I got to Bulgaria. Uh -huh. um, so that was um that was the only bummer. I got to meet all the cast. And I was like, where's Ving Rhames? They're like, he left a couple of days ago. I'm like, go. Oh. <laughs> well, how do you handle that? So if there's maybe a movie that you're not you're passionate about writing, it goes through the process, like you say, and it's not necessarily anybody's fault. It's just Steve Miner thought a scene was cool and it doesn't logically. And that's a whole other issue of Steve Miner's directing a bunch of films, and some of them are pretty good. And why he didn't kind of connect those two dots is a whole other conversation for steve minor eddie white uh, feeds cows to an alligator come on yes he directed lake placid the, lake placid yeah kind of the best betty white's best performance um this is where if i had, had a dick i'd tell you to suck it. <laughs> sorry that's one of my favorite lines betty white says it in lake placid oh i thought you were saying it for a minute there and i was like no, no, oh no, 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 i was no, like wow betty joe white way to go off the, the rails cop. sorry so sorry 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 now i'm ready we're just having a conversation. We're never making it to Bulgaria now. No, oh. no. We've totally been told. <laughs> no, no, that would have been fine. I was just like, oh, I better be careful what I say now. Um, no, 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 no. No, but you've got you've got this movie. You've written it. And you're like, eh, well, it's a movie. How do you go out and sell it? Because you can't say anything bad. Um, you can you can creatively say stuff. <laughs> um, I just, I, I think you can tell, like, I'm pretty on, you know, I'm, I'm pretty honest. I think I've gotten a very good gauge of where movies started that I write and where they end up. Um, so I never go out and tell anybody like, this is the, you know, this is going to be, I mean, I tell them, I'm like, look, if you're expecting a remake of 
day that edge are going to hate it yep like you know if you just go in and you know wanting to see a fun zombie movie with some people that you know in it there's some good bloody effects and some good action scenes you'll like you'll really like it but if you the day that you know i'm just honest with people like i, I don't try to try to like trick them into going to see a movie i mean i'll i certainly won't talk any you know i'll give credit to a lot of people like you know for all the hard work they're doing because it takes a ton of work and a lot of hard work to make a movie it's not easy to make a movie at all so getting a movie made is a huge accomplishment but I kind of always have a good feeling about where my stuff kind of is landing with people you know like the movie I just directed uh, don't look back that just mm -hmm. came out like I knew going into it that it wasn't a horror movie in the traditional sense that it was more of like a mystery yeah. with horror in it so I knew that was going to be a tough sell because I knew people were going to be expecting for me they were going to be expecting big bloody set pieces and I nailed it like the you know a lot of you know the reviews it's funny like now it's like 50 50 on Rotten Tomatoes where like half the reviews are like awful but they're all the ones that don't like it say it's not like Final Destination and yep. the other other reviews are great because they're like oh this isn't like you know like Final Destination this is something totally different and we really appreciate it so you just kind of learn to let that stuff roll one of the things we were excited about is you're actually our first guest who, for some odd reason, actually has a movie to sell that's out right now, you know? That, oh. And I'm curious, this is your directorial, you directed The Good Samaritan, which was a short film, but this is your feature length directing debut, correct? Yeah, yeah. And it's coming out when? Now. Um, it's out. No, it I know, but what's oh. going on right now? How do you- Oh, COVID and the election? Yeah. COVID in the election you mean yeah um yeah that was not a <laughs> this was this was not a great time for a movie to come out um well I mean I, more so the election, I think I think the election actually had more has been more distracting than COVID I mean mm -hmm. uh, you know COVID is horrible and you know so there's a lot of people suffering from it and we're we're all it, you know hopefully that will go away at some point um but, but you know, I, I think you're right. But I mean, if you're home, uh, VOD is doing very well, right? So yeah. digital streaming is doing very well right now. We're yeah. the bit the industry is still working. We're still making content. People are home. They are yeah. consuming. But the election does yes. take people's minds off of it because I've this is going to be a couple of weeks before this comes out, but we still don't know who we're talking and we were talking before this. And you and I were emailing last night. Or is here's an Eastern Kentucky phrase nervous as long tail cats in room full of rocking chairs but i'm not nervous now i was nervous last night i'm still nervous i might be eating a crow when that by the time this comes out but i have a i have a feeling trump's going to be out of office i'm, I'm feeling pretty fucking good about it i'm glad you are because <laughs> i'm i'm as nervous as a dog shitting peach seeds i'm trying to think of all the ones that would hear <laughs> yeah don't ask chad it's just nervous because it would be painful um <laughs> But you have all this shit going on. So you, you, you finally get your directorial debut. I'm just kind of curious. And how does it You still have to go on and sell it. Like the world, is, we're in the middle of a pandemic. Yeah. We have this petulant pumpkin in the White House. And yes. we're trying to remove him. And we are doing our best in our, our little, blue, little blue berry in this big ass red state trying to do our best. But clearly we fail. How do you go out and just kind of... That makes I mean, it's hard. I mean, it was hard. It was hard to get because of COVID, you know, mm -hmm. um, you know, all the productions had kind of stopped. A lot of films that were done 
they decided to put out on VOD instead of going out theatrically. So like a lot of the market was flooded with a lot of product. Um, so it was actually hard because at first you're like, everybody's desperate for content, but it's like, yeah, but there's still all these like super A-listers that have that are, have projects that they're putting out on VOD. So what we had Mulan, uh, I'm just thinking of The Witches, Chad, Robert Zemeckis' last film yeah. on HBO Max. I mean, then yeah. that's just the last couple I can think of. Yeah. Yeah. So it was, a, it was tough to get a distribution because people didn't know what the market was going to be like. And then finally we picked a time we were going to release it around Halloween. And it's, it's good because theatrically there wasn't a lot of competition because a lot of the big horror movies have moved on, but they, they've dumped a lot of horror stuff and people get nostalgic during Halloween too. It's like, Oh, I want to watch Halloween on Halloween or this is my favorite Halloween movie. So let's get together and watch my favorite Halloween movie. And then it went right into like elections craziness. So well, Hocus Pocus is number one at the box office. I know. <laughs> which was never number one at the box office. I know. Nick Garris on it last month. And was, we we're talking about it. Hocus Pocus wasn't even number one when it came out. They, I know. Disney dumped it in the summer. <laughs> People yeah, don't remember Disney, that. Empties, Disney just screws everybody over. I know. Um, but I, got, I do got to ask with your direct, with Don't Look Back, um, your directorial debut. Um, how is that feeling of you wrote it, you direct it, you have full control. You oh. don't have to worry about anybody else's modif- messing with the script or changing it. How does that, how does that feel? I just. Well, it, it, it felt good before we started shooting. Um, <laughs> but then, but then once you start shooting, once you go into production on something, you realize, especially if you're shooting something for like an indie budget, mm-hmm. um, you realize, oh, okay, well, we can't do all these. We can't do these scenes rewrite these scenes because we can't afford this and we can't do all these locations because we don't have enough days to shoot them so i have to consolidate these so there's a lot of there was a great learning curve to this movie and i'm very happy with how it turned out i mean i you know again you know i'm it's just not a horror i think it's a really solid mystery it's got like really good like people that don't like like horror movies would really like this movie like it's just a good mystery but it's got like elements of faith in it and karma and how we treat each other and society and blah blah you know, a lot of crammed a lot of shit in there um beautiful black lead actress you know which i've been wanting to cast for a long time um but there were you know there were a lot of other hurdles we had to overcome because it's like oh we're shooting it for a certain budget right. so i now i know why some of my movies don't turn out <laughs> like the <laughs> script i had in my mind because you don't have the the money to shoot it exactly like you want to um so it was it was great but it was it was also a very humbling and good learning experience for me too because even directing a short it's just you know i love how the short turned out but it's just not the same as doing a feature you know there's so many more moving parts and um more so many more people and um you know every day it's like trying to get your shots but you're also dealing with everything that life can throw it's going to rain tomorrow so we can't you know we had to reserve a park through the government for this day and now it's raining we can't shoot there so we have to go shoot somewhere else. Okay, now we have to drive two and a half hours from where we are to go shoot in the hospital. The scene that we we're gonna shoot like three weeks from now. So our actors don't know all their, you know, haven't memorized their long speeds. Yeah. <laughs> so a lot of that stuff going on where you're just like, ugh. Um, but it was fun. I had a lot of fun doing it. Um, so does it, does it make you look forward to the next one that you're gonna direct or? Yeah, because I've learned, like I said, I feel like I've learned so much from doing the last one that I feel like I'm ready now. Like I'm, I'm glad the first one wasn't like people just give me a budget to do what I wanted. Cause then I would have 
probably just had an easy experience. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think I needed to, this wasn't, this was a fun, but again, just, you know, guerrilla style filmmaking. Yeah. You know, it was, a, it was, so it was, it, I, you just learned so much more doing that. Um, I, I don't know if the, I know the budget makes problem solving slightly easier, but of all the directors we've talked to, they all kind of have the same answer of, yeah, more budget, le- more people, more time, more, more time but yeah. ev- every project has so many hurdles they're all just tough yeah. yeah yeah i think with bigger films if there's a problem a lot of times they'll just throw money at it mm-hmm. and on our film you know when you're doing any film you can't throw money at it you've got to figure out a way out of it and sometimes that can help you come up with some creative stuff but if you're on a tight time schedule too it's like you're worrying about okay i've got to get all my shots in today because we have to get this before the sun comes up and we have to do this because we're losing this actor in two days so if we don't do this today we can maybe do that tomorrow but then we'll have to switch people so there's a lot um but um so don't look back really quick though i want to so it's on vod so they can watch it on amazon and amazon itunes voodoo youtube um don't get it legally on youtube pay for it please or rent it um (laughs) you can uh yeah any of the vod sites you can i think direct tv all of those have access to be able to watch it yeah okay uh, now, I have to ask about. So you were talking about earlier about selling treatments, and then I thought you were going to ask more about gay stuff. Go ahead, back to the treatment. <laughs> I can't. <laughs> no, no, no. I was just kidding. <laughs> you were talking about selling treatments. So this is kind of an evolution of the business kind of question. And they, you know, the business has changed so much in the last 30, 40 years. As it goes without saying, it's it's changed monumentally in the last five to ten, right? Yeah. Um, they don't particularly pay for treatments anymore. They don't particularly pay for people to develop things anymore. They want you to bring, develop it and bring the project to them. Right. Yes. Uh, Joe Dante's talked about making a fine living, not making it. George Romero talked about the nineties. He never made more money than he did in the nineties, not making a damn thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. Like, yeah. And then in the nineties, they, I mean, you could go in and pitch like, you know, a sentence of somebody and they freaking buy it off of you, you know, and I got spoiled with treatments, you know, cause I could write like a five, 10 page treatment of a movie and sell it. And now literally it's like, they want this, they don't, they, they don't only want the script, but they want you to have an attachment, yeah. you know, it, it's like, they're like, we love the script, but you know, if, if we just need like an A-lister attached, it's like, but isn't that your job? Call me crazy. But when I worked at New Line, that's what we used to do. <laughs> that's what the industry, that's how the industry has changed. Yeah. So I'm curious in your day in and day out as a working screenwriter, now director. So how many screenplays are you writing a year? And what I'm kind of curious, if you could tell the, I'll talk about the audience, just the, I'm assuming monumental amounts of scripts you've read or written that probably won't be shot anytime soon. Yeah. That you've, probably, yeah. that you've made hopefully money off of, but have never, we'll see the light of day day. that's really sad (laughs) i didn't mean for it to be but i okay you're triggering me again this is bad touch (laughs) bad bad touch i'm so sorry i was but you have the perfect sausage remember (laughs) (laughs) don't victim blame me um sorry Sorry, people no no they'll love it but they we do have listeners who are curious about getting into screenwriting and they're always curious about, you know, the actual, how it works. Yeah. Well, I, everybody's got their own process for writing. Um, I find myself 
because I'm trying to get so many things going off the ground at the same time that I find myself like multitasking, which I know a lot of writers don't do, which is fine. Like I, you know, they can zero in on a project, but it's like, I have to train my Usagi script by next week, but I've also got to do a rewrite on this other project. And I'm working on a, no, a new project that I've got to, you know, it's a, but then the last couple of days I haven't done anything because I've been watching, you know, the elect, well, not, the, yeah, two days. Been and watching talking to rednecks in Kentucky. And <laughs> talking to some rednecks in Kentucky. <laughs> and they were just all over my sausage. Um, <laughs> so, but what I tell writers is, first of all, you do have to write. Yep. You know, if you're a writer, you write. And that's one thing nobody else has control over. Um, you should pick a genre. If you're going to be a screenwriter, you should pick a genre that you would love working in for 10, 15 years. If somebody says you can only work in one genre, you should pick one because this is a business. And for people to remember you, they have to know what lane you fit in. So I know it works against every creative instinct we have where we want to show people that we can write anything or if we're an right. actor, we can do anything. But they have to be able to brand you and market you Mm-hmm. and they, they need to remember you because you know so when they think when people think of me they think of final destination they think of horror you know obviously usagi is not a horror thing mm-hmm. so i'm working in a different genre now but you know you need people to connect you with like what your work is because the first thing that you do that gets noticed is what they're going to want more of like if your first thing is a horror project or a comedy or a drama they're going to be like bring us your next horror comedy or drama and if you're, if you say, well, your first one was a horror movie and you're like, I have a great comedy. You're like, yeah, get us back to us when you have that horror, movie. you know, they just, it just fries their brain. Um, mm-hmm. So, um, and even though forget the studio systems, trying to get into the studio systems at this, this day and age, cause it's, you know, you just watch, see what the studios are putting out. It's always like sequels, remakes, big book IPs. Like they, if they do an original film like Tenet, it's gotta be with Chris Nolan. Yep. <laughs> who's done like, you you know huge films but the good thing is there's a ton of companies out there that have deals at studios you can shoot films now on a friggin' iphone that's 4k mm-hmm. you can you know build your own audience on youtube and and sell stuff to Am- get stuff up on amazon if it shorts up on amazon there's a way to get your work out there but you have to keep working and you have to get keep growing because that's the biggest thing because i'm learning every time i write like Every time I write, I hopefully get a little better. Um, and I know a lot of writers where they're like, this is my first script and it's the best script you're ever gonna read. And they really believe that. And it's like, I, you have to believe that to have that faith in yourself to kind of keep you going through the rough times. But if you're any kind of artist or any kind of craft person, you, you know that you get better the more you do something. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. if you're a baker, your first cake is not gonna, that you, that you make is not gonna be the best cake in the world. Right. Um, your mom might say it's the best cake because that's your mom but you know as writers we have to you have to learn to be like open to constructive criticism figuring out how to sift through criticism to find out when it's constructive and when it's just somebody trying to tear tear you down Um, but you have opportunities now if you're a writer to like write stuff and then find friends who are directors and actors of friends of yours and like do a short you know you can show you can start showing people your work and building a kind of an audience that way, instead of trying to rely on, you know, coming to Hollywood and, you know, spending all your money for a one-way ticket. Mm-hmm. And then you have to end up like selling your ass on Santa Monica Boulevard, like I did, it was horrible. But you um, had the perfect- I had, a, I had a nice ass when I was And young. the perfect sausage. 
and I will, uh, and to, to, uh, bounce off your story, uh, my mother would never, my mother has never told me I made a good cake. Now, honest to God, when you were saying that, I almost made the joke of maybe your mother. (laughs) (laughs) We're damaged, damaged folks, damaged damaged folks. But that I was going to ask one other question, but you actually said something that leads me to in this business now, would you still encourage people who want to be screenwriters to move to Hollywood or would you tell no. them to stay where they're at and do it? I mean, no, honestly, I, I, at this point, I wouldn't, I mean, I know again, it's because it's because the industry is changing so much. I know that when I, back in the nineties, you know, when I sold final mm-hmm. destination, I wish I'd come out to Los Angeles because that just would have been, I just sold a movie and they're making it, you know, like, yeah. so there have been some, some jazz around me. And the thing is, if you set up, if you get a big project picked up or something, yeah, it doesn't hurt to come out here and make the rounds. But um, there are film look centers that are, you know, Atlanta's big, you know, they're yep. sh- shooting stuff in Florida and North Carolina. They're shooting stuff all over the place. Um, and you probably will have to come to Hollywood at some point, you know, in your career. And it certainly doesn't hurt, but you don't have to be in Hollywood to have a career. Texas has a big film community. Yeah. Uh, a great one. So, you know, if you're, if you're an artist and I used to feel like every time I'd say that I have to roll my eyes and not be pretentious, but if you're an artist in any craft, your, your goal is to get your, have your voice heard, have your work seen. That's what you want, you know? So there's so many ways to have that happen now where back with the, in the old days, there was a studio system out here in Hollywood and mm-hmm. you'd get stuck in the studio system and they would like do all this stuff for you. But that that's just gone by the wayside now. Like again, the big studios, they their new line got absorbed by Warner Brothers. First time Warner picked absorbed. First Ted Turner picked it up, mm-hmm. then Time Warner, then Warner, you know, it's like they're just like these behemoths, you know, these big I know that I don't even know if that's the right word. I hope it is because then I'll feel yeah. smart. Um good. <laughs> I'm so smart. Um go ahead. But um, but yeah, you don't have to go, you can you can find film communities anywhere um just about i think creating work because if somebody finds your work like you know get our lights out you know james wan saw that mm-hmm. and just loved it and decided he was gonna make a feature out of it so you can do that anywhere you don't have to be in hollywood to do that anymore yeah that leads me because so you just said the word artist and i was watching some interviews with you like i said trying to prepare for today and you didn't want to be called screenwriter, writer, or your director now, or someone who acted a little bit as well. You wanted to be called an artist. And I oh, don't did I know say that. that? Yeah, you did. I really say that in an interview. Yeah. You said you. Oh my god! Really right now. You want me to send you the link? Oh my god! No, I don't even want to hear. That's so pretentious. But but I don't. I'm not <laughs> asking why. I actually didn't think it was pretentious because I've met many different folks, and they might say artist, they may say writer. I I. Um, I tend to like the one, I tend to like the answer storyteller. I think that's kind of what we're doing here. But I was wondering why you picked artists. I have a feeling that somebody said, I have a feeling somebody said, oh, would you, do you, would you rather be called a writer or a director mm-hmm. or an actor? And then I would, th- maybe yeah. I said artist at that point. Yeah. I just, it's funny the way you said it. I just imagine myself sitting on some big couch. No, not at all. Not at all. It did not. Down on going, you know, the cigarette and a top hat going, call me an artist. <laughs> no, uh, no. Don't call me just something like that in my um, day they all had faces yes so I, th- I i think i probably because i you know i do 
still love, I love writing. I love directing. I love producing. I love acting. Um, you know, I think that, yeah, yeah. I, I, I think the other person was asking me to like, which one I wanted to be identified. Yeah. Yeah. With. And you picked yeah. artist, and I was and curious. I, I think, yeah, I think it's just because it's more, I think it's more encompassing of, of what we do. Like, you know, I'll still hopefully act at some point, you know, I'm not obviously not going to be, you know, the pretty teenager getting murdered anymore. I might be the don't push yourself down. You can still be the middle-aged pretty person getting, I know, I would, I know, but not the teenager. That's the point. Oh, but I, <laughs> I, I'm in my forties. I don't want to see that shit anyway. I want to see middle-aged people get murdered. All right. So maybe, maybe can get myself killed and still act some more, but you know, I enjoy directing. Um, I enjoy writing. I, you know, would love to act more and direct more too. So yeah, I think artists is just more encompassing of different. Cause I know when I'm talking to people a lot of times, it's like, well, our audience, they're mostly screenwriters or they're mostly directors or they're mostly actors. And so I think artists just kind of encompasses all of us, including musicians and people who can draw. Yeah. Jeffrey, this has been an absolute pleasure. Well, for you, maybe. We've no. had a wonderful time. <laughs> it took me a minute. It yeah. took me half a, a second to realize he just did that. Yeah, he just, <laughs> called, that. He just called that fat guy an asshole. I uh, did not. And I, <laughs> uh, how dare I, you? I love the fact that you've had a great sense of humor. I, I love the fact that you came from Breathitt County and did this. And I admire you, sir, so much. And it has well, been absolute pleasure and an honor to have you on our show finally i'm i'm glad it took a while um actually because i think it ended up being better i asked probably some questions that were a little long but i think it ended up being better so i thankfully and thankfully joe's beard has hit all the saliva coming out of his mouth from all the mentions of sausage (laughs) (laughs) the the good thing is too now you have my actual email because um so now, yeah, you guys can have me back on the show anytime, of course. Like, I'm sorry. I'm sorry it took so long. Oh, don't uh, apologize. Don't apologize. I no, you apologize. To, you I apologize to me person. right now. <laughs> I told Todd the same thing. And, and, and we, uh, it, it's absolutely fine. So I, it's just always a funny joke to me. I was telling my wife uh, yesterday. She was, oh, you got Jeff. And I said, well, she said Jeff. And I said, yeah, I got Jeffrey Reddick. And she goes, oh, and I said, yeah, the two people, it took us three years. I was like, oh, shit, they're from Kentucky. They'll say yes. Oh, we've got that connection. So it's but I, I'm it so works. easy. I would have said yes. I just forgot. <laughs> no, it's funny. I've got, so, I've got so many people out there that I said yes to, and they're just sitting around probably waiting, going, where the hell is this guy? <laughs> I just forgot. Just keep asking me. So, um, well, I want to remind our folks that you've got, don't look back right now on any VOD. Go out there, watch it, check it out. Give Mr. Reddick all your money, or at least most of it. Give you don't have to give me all your money. Just just a little love. Just rent the. I have an OnlyFans page, so they can send their they can send me up. It's just me (laughs) typing. Perfect sausage. It's just no, no. It's just me typing, so it's very soothing. (laughs) Watch me type. That is a that is a very niche. That's just that's a small market of somebody's going to pay to watch somebody type. There's got to be an audience for that. Oh, there's an audience for everything. There has to be. There has to be. <laughs> there has to be. But before we go, is there anything else that you, you've got coming out that you want to talk about? or just? Uh, well, I did uh, produce a film called The Call. Uh-huh. It has Tobin Bell and Lynn Shea in it. And that also uh, just came out on VOD. And that's an awesome movie. It's 
straight up horror. Like mine's more of a mystery thriller and the call is just straight up awesome horror film. Um, so you can, you can have a double dip of Reddick. Hmm. I can probably make that sound a lot dirty if I tried, oh, but I loved it. I loved it. Okay. That was dirty enough. Okay. Um, so yeah, you can watch, those are two things I'm really excited about. And you can just follow me on Twitter, Jeffrey A. Reddick, um, just to kind of keep up with what I'm doing. Um, but no, I just, thanks for having me on the show. I definitely, you know, hope everybody stays safe and, um, you know, I know it's a stressful time with all that's going on just in the world. So hopefully everybody's staying as stress-free and yeah, as possible. Hopefully by the time people are listening to this, you're going to go, I don't understand why Joe was so worried about this election. Clearly petulant pumpkin didn't win. I hope that's the sentence that people are uttering in their car while driving, while listening. I have a feeling it will be. Otherwise I'll be, I'll eat my words on your show. Yeah, we'll have you back and we'll talk. I'll Actually, Bobby. you know what we should do is have you and Todd at the same time. Oh, you that would be awesome. He would be up for it. Yeah, he All would right. be. I, I love Todd. Absolutely. Would love to do it. And tell Bobby when you see him, give him a big hug for me and be like, Jeff used to have a crush on you. Can I give him a kiss too? Oh, well, then I'll get jealous, but you can do it if you want. <laughs> yeah, just don't tell me about it. No, well, you can uh, tell me about it. Then I'll, I'll just get jealous. I'll stop recording. I'll tell you a story I can't tell on here. Right. <laughs> no matter what you tell me, this is going to make it sound really bad for Bob. Yeah, um, I know. It's not really that bad. All <laughs> right. Well, this has been Bonehead Weekly. Thank you so much, Jeffrey. Thank you all. Grrrr. <sighs>